Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me as we continue our Tuesday series in which one of our all-star podcast guests takes over the podcast, picks the topics for the month, and joins me on all the episodes. For the month of July, our takeover guest is Jay Celebrer, a partner in PwC's national office who specializes in business combinations. And for our final episode in this series, today we'll be focusing in on reporting business combinations with the SEC. Don't overlook the importance of mapping all this stuff out and planning for all the filings that you're going to have to do when you do a deal. I think it's we find it's pretty easy to get lost in the excitement uh, and the challenges of closing a deal and then working on the integration and then from the financial reporting perspective, doing all the purchase accounting work. Uh, but it takes a lot to make sure all the filings get done as well. When companies are thinking about this too, they, they want to make sure they're thinking about it in terms of the filing as a whole. So if there's an acquisition that's pending or an acquisition that's completed, I think it's important to think about the effects that that might have on other areas of the file, filing. So for example, liquidity disclosures and MD&A, um, there may be updates to the risk factors, the business section, et cetera. So it just, you know, we talked about a very narrow part of it, but I think it, it's important to look at it holistically. That was Jay with Ryan Spencer, a national office partner who specializes in reporting for SEC registrants. As I said, Jay and Ryan are concluding Jay's all-star month on business combinations by sharing the reporting requirements for public companies, including filing requirements with respect to financial statements and pro formas. Listen in so you're not caught unprepared. Jay and Ryan have us covered, so let's get started. Jay, welcome back to your month of podcasting about business combinations. And Ryan, so nice to have you join us again today. I know it's been a few years since we've had you on, so it's great to be talking about some of the SEC implications of business combinations. But maybe to kick things off, Jay, I'll go to you first. And I think one of the things we often see is that when people are considering doing a deal, particularly involving SEC registrants, one or more, one of the things they don't really think about are all those requirements, which then can sometimes impact the deal timeline because things people want to get things done quickly and that, that may not work with these requirements. So what can you share on that? Well, I think that's definitely true, Heather. And thanks for having me back for the, the last week of my uh, month of podcasts here. And Ryan, thanks for joining me to help talk through this, uh, this area. I think it'll be great stuff. And I think you're right, because once a deal happens, the clock starts ticking for public companies. And if you're late... You know, you can lose eligibility for some of your filings, and just generally, it's not a good look for you not to be timely with all of your SEC filings. And a lot of times with deals, you need help from the sellers to get some of the financial information to be available that we're going to talk about today. So sometimes it's important to know this all up front so that you can write it into the purchase and sale agreements to make sure you can get all the information timely. And then, Ryan, before I go to you with some of the actual requirements, maybe a question that I think our audience may be thinking about is, is there ever a way to say, oh, sorry, SEC, we need to do this deal so quickly that we are going to be late with these requirements or no, it it is what it is. And it, it doesn't matter how, quote, important or otherwise the deal is. Yeah. So when whenever you're talking about SEC filing requirements here, there are the rules that need to be applied. And in certain circumstances, 
you can ask pursuant to the rules. You can actually ask for a waiver of the financial statement requirements, oftentimes viewing that they're not needed. The financial statements may not be needed for investor protection. And that obviously can help um, accelerate the timeline of, of a deal. But for the most part, the starting point is that the, the rules are there. The rules are written for a reason. Um, but there is that the waiver rule that does does exist and allows registrants to write in for relief. All right. So I guess for the audience, it's out there, but don't rely on that. Listen to what Ryan's about to tell you about the rules probably is, is the best advice. Generally, yeah. <laughs> All right. So then, Ryan, with that said, I know we're going to get into the detail, but big picture, what are the requirements that are involved when you do a deal involving an SEC registrant? Sure. So there's a number of things that need to be considered as it relates to SEC filings and financial statement requirements as it relates to, to acquisitions. And the rules can be quite complicated. I think I'll talk first, though, about the potential SEC filings uh, and the financial statement requirements that kick in once a deal deal closes. We'll, we'll talk later about some of the requirements that, that may be needed or financial statements that may be needed prior to the deal closing. But I'll, I'll start here with with those that um, that start once the the deal closes. So what I'm going to talk about mostly today is the two items of disclosure related to acquisitions of businesses. The first is separate financial statements of significant acquired businesses. And the second is the complementary pro forma financials that accompany those. So when I say, Heather, separate financial statements, I'm talking about full financial statements prepared in accordance with U.S. GAAP, SEC rules, and with the corresponding footnotes as well. So I'm not talking about summary financial information yeah. or summarized information. I'm talking about full financial statements. And then the other item is uh, what I mentioned is the pro forma financial statements that are prepared. And those rules ask the registrant to take the acquisition and give effect to it in the in the registrant's historical financial statements as if it occurred earlier or it, it occurred in those periods. All right. And then, Ryan, I can probably guess this, but I do think it's helpful when you're talking about requirements to understand why we have these requirements, because it, it can give some context here. So why these particular two requirements? So, Heather, the underlying rationale for these requirements are, are really no different than many others are, are to provide decision, useful information to investors. So the theory here being that acquisitions if if there's a significant acquisition that's contemplated or a significant acquisition that has occurred and I'm an investor and I'm going to make an investment decision in that public company, the historical financial statements of the public company in those circumstances may not be sufficient information al alone for that investment decision. So what the rules call for in those circumstances then is separate financial statements of the target business, as well as the, the complementary pro formas when used in, in connection with the historical financials, give that decision useful information. All right. And we've used the word business here. I, I wasn't counting, but I... I uh, numerous, numerous times. And I do know, Jay, one of the things we've talked about in the past is that you have asset acquisitions and business combinations. And considering that we have not used the word asset yet, I'm presuming that means that this only applies, these rules only apply when you're doing an actual business combination. Yeah, that's right, Heather. Uh, all these filing requirements that Ryan's talking about is when you have acquired a business under the SEC's rules, but like with a lot of things, there's a bit of a twist here because we've talked a lot in some of our other podcasts about evaluating whether something's a business or an asset acquisition for accounting purposes. But there are some pretty important differences between the accounting rules 
and the SEC's rules uh, in Regulation SX here. Mm. So we talked about, for example, on the accounting side, there are some screen tests and then you know, about how significant are all the, the significant amount of value of what you've acquired all concentrated in one, one asset, let's say. And if not, then you look at things like inputs and outputs and processes to figure out if it's a business or not. But that's on the accounting side. I guess, Ryan, I think on the SEC side, it's a fair, fair bit different, right? Or can be a fair bit different. Yeah, that's right. The SEC's definition of business here really is around whether or not there's um, sufficient continuity of the acquired operations into the into the acquiring company. So the rules in their words actually state that should be evaluated in light of the facts and circumstances involved and whether there is sufficient continuity of the acquired entity's operations. So there's a bit of a presumption here that a separate entity or a subsidiary or a, a division of, of the selling company is, is a business. And when that's not clear, there are also a number of attributes that are listed in the SEC rules that, that uh, a company can evaluate that against. So I guess Heather, the punchline is it's certainly possible, and I think we do see it you know, reasonably often, that you uh, may be acquiring a business for one, but not for the other. So you may not be acquiring a business for accounting purposes, but you end up uh, having to treat it as a business for SEC purposes and do all of these filings that Ryan's talking about. All right. So definitely, if you're an SEC registrant, sounds like it makes sense to, if you're uh, doing a deal, to make sure you're checking both of these sets of rules. But so then, Ryan, back to you, I guess the question would be, you mentioned pro formas and the separate financial statements, but I know they're not required in every single case. So what are the requirements around that? So Heather, there's rules and regulation SX that need to be applied to determine this. The SEC has sort of a sliding scale uh, requirement and calculations to figure out how much uh, how much financial information is needed, if anything, based on really the size of the acquired company as compared to the to the public company buyer. So the more significant the acquisition, the more financial periods may need to be included. Um, these tests that are run are referred to as the significance tests, and they're within SX Rule three hundred five. So that's why companies auditors. Their legal advisors will often refer to those separate financial statements as 305 financials. If um, So when you run these tests, you, you run the test, and if any of the tests result in, in a percentage that's greater than 20%, then the rules would require separate financial statements of the acquired, of the acquired company. And for an existing public company, these these disclose, uh, these financial statements would be filed on a Form 8K within, within the prescribed time frame. All right. And then let me ask a question, because I definitely, the reference to 305 financials, I'm sure is familiar to most of our listeners, but you mentioned separate financials and pro forma. So does 305 cover both? Like, do the significance tests cover both whether the separate financials and or pro formas are required? Yeah, good question. There's a little bit of back and forth in the rules, but Article 11 is the the rules that require pro forma financial statements for for uh, significant acquired businesses. But generally speaking, if you have tripped the 305 test, then you're going to have complimentary pro forma financial statements as well. Article 11 will give you all the details of the rules around preparing those. Okay, that's helpful. And then you, so we talked about significant tests, and I know these can get complicated fairly fast, but can you give us sort of the highlights of what are required in the significance tests? Sure, I'll go through those, but just just before I do, I, I thought it was worth mentioning that there are there are differences in the rules related to requirements for foreign private issuers or for acquisitions of foreign businesses as it relates to age of financial statements, 
as well as acquisitions of real estate operations. So I'm going to talk about what I'll just call everything outside of that. And, and if you find yourself in that situation, it's important to go back to the forms, go back to the, the actual rules to make sure it applies. But just um, to cover the significance test, uh, Heather, there's, there's three tests that need to be run independently. There's the investment test, the asset test, and the income test. You run all of those and you take the percentage that's highest and that's what's going to drive the requirements. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So briefly on the investment test, what the investment test asks the registrant to do is compare the total consideration transferred to acquire that business and compare that to the registrant's uh, aggregate worldwide um, public float. So I, I just call it, I just call it the public float and compares that. So for example, if the consideration transferred was hundred million and the market cap or the market float of the acquiring company uh, is is a billion, then you're that's going to yield ten percent. Uh, I think it's important to note there, though, that if the registrant does not have public float, so for example, an initial public offering, um, in those cases, the comparison needs to be made to the total assets of the registrant. So in this case, if it was a hundred million consideration transferred, but the total assets of the regist- uh, registrant are four hundred million, then that would yield that would yield twenty five percent. The second test is is the asset test, and this one's easiest because it's just like the name implies. You compare the total assets of the acquired company, uh, as reported, to the total assets of the registrant, um, and that that'll yield a percentage as well. And the third one is is interesting. It's it's called the income test, and the income test really has two prongs to it. And what you would do is you you first actually compare the pre tax income of the acquired company to the pre-tax income of the registrant, and that'll yield a percentage. Then separately, in the second prong of the test, you would actually compare the revenue of the acquired company to the revenue of the registrant. That'll also yield a percentage. So for example, if you do the pre-tax income test and it comes out at 30%, you do the revenue test, it comes out at 10%, you're actually gonna use the lowest of those two for purposes of the income test. So this was a change that was made in the rules a few years back, and it does try to reduce some of the anomalous results where pre-tax income for a company that's maybe break-even, um, it was yielding a lot of you know a lot of hits to the test, so to speak. So they use this lower of, and I do think it's important to mention that the revenue test um, can only be used if the registrant or the acquired business had material revenue in each of the last two years, and if it doesn't, then you're just only going to be able to use the pre-tax income test, albeit they will allow in that circumstance some averaging to to eliminate some of those anomalous effects. So two questions then. So within the income test, oh, sorry, within the income test, you take the lowest, but then you compare all three tests and take the highest result? Perfect. So okay. you, can, you take the results of all three. So if the investment test was... 19, if the asset test was 25 and the income test was 45, then you would use 45%. And that's the percentage that then drives the requirements. So in summary, if you're, if you do the test and you exceed 20%, uh, but you don't exceed 40%, then you'll need one year of audited financial statements and the most recent year to date interim period. That's what would need to be supplied. If you exceed 40%, then 
then you're going to need two years of audited financial statements, the subsequent interim period, and the comparative mm. interim period of the prior year as well. All right, much more complicated. And then I know you preface this by saying we're taking the more plain vanilla case, but when you were walking through the investment test, it occurred to me, does this matter then if you're issuing or you're paying sort of cash for the acquisition or shares? Because if you're issuing shares, then that's going to change the amount of shares outstanding, right? Or is that way more complicated than what we need to talk about? The the shares will just go into the consideration transferred and there's there's specific calculation nuances on how you calculate that float, but it does not include, you know, what I would call a pro forma gross up for the amount of shares that, that you expect to include All right. or expect to issue. And then you mentioned pro forma there. So I'm going to ask another follow-up question because um, if I understand correctly, then if there is, there are some cases where you could actually wind up using pro forma information for this test. Is that correct? Sure. So typically for the significance test, the registrant would use information as of the end of the most recently completed fiscal year for for the company and for the the target company. But there are if there have been recent significant acquisitions, there is the ability in some cases to use pro forma amounts to calculate the results of the significance tests. Um, This can get a little complicated with regards to how you calculate those pro forma amounts and what types of adjustments are allowed to be used. Um, so listen, listeners should make sure they read through the rules if, if they run into that situation. All right. And then if I loop all the way back to where we started and we were talking about the fact that, you know, these requirements can, in some cases, cause an issue with the deal timeline, I presume it's obvious advice to say you should look at these tests as early as you can to understand what's going to be required. Yeah, absolutely. The The periods, as I mentioned, are user, they're generally the latest fiscal year. So companies should be able to have a pretty good idea or a pretty good sense early on whether or not they're going to they're going to trip those tests. And this is where it often becomes important to write into the purchase and sale agreement that the seller will agree to help get all those financial statements audited for the right number of years or adjust them for SEC rules if they weren't following them as a private company in the past, because once the deal closes and the target company folks go away, they may not be as motivated to uh, to get to get oh. that information to you, and you often need their help to do it. Fair point. So, Jay, you mentioned you mentioned prepared in accordance with SEC rules. I, I believe I said that before. So, just to clarify, so these financials would be prepared in accordance with with GAAP and and the SEC's um, rules and regulations for for uh, for reporting. So, Regulation SX. But there's certain information for the acquired businesses that are in SX that really aren't required necessarily to be prepared. So if it was a if the acquired company was non-public, then and they mean they did, they likely didn't have publicly held common stock, so there wouldn't you wouldn't need to have the earnings per share disclosures, mm-hmm. and generally you wouldn't need to have say segment reporting, for example. There's also certain circumstances where um, if the business acquired maybe was not really operated as a standalone division within the, the, the selling company. There are, um, in the rules, op- opportunities, I'll call them, to prepare abbreviated financial statements. So these would be financials that are just focused more on, uh, for example, assets, the assets acquired and the liabilities assumed and the direct costs and direct expenses. So they're much more abbreviated. They still have footnotes. But in certain circumstances, if you qualify, you have to qualify for that, you, you can pre- present those financials on an abbreviated basis. 
but I would say that's probably more the exception than the rule for most of the deals that we see, although they, we do run into those. That's right. That's right. All right. And then, so now I, you know, you talk about auto financial statements and anyone can get audited financial statements with enough time. However, I know time is something that's very precious here when we're talking about deals and some of these filing timelines are very quick. So what is required then, Ryan, from when things have to be filed? Sure. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the process and that'll feed into the questions we often get around age of financial statements. Staleness of financial statements is the other, the other yes. term we hear. Um, so if you're an existing public company, we'll, t- we'll talk about registration statements or IPOs in a, in a little bit. But uh, if you're an existing public company and you have a significant acquisition, so exceeding 20 percent, then you're, you're going to be required to file a, a Form AK. Uh, and that's due within four business days of the consummation of the acquisition. But in that 8K, you're you're not required to have those financial statements prepared in, in for that filing. The SEC in the rules offers a grace period, uh, which would say that no later than 71 days after the date that initial Form 8K was required to be filed, and that's within, say, four days after the acquisition – you can then file an amendment to that AK to include those financial financial statements later. So in a nutshell, you get about 70, 75 days to supply the financials that are, uh, that are required if you have a significant acquisition. All right. I, yeah. I was trying to figure out the 71, but it made sense when you put it with the four 75 seems a little lot more logical. So basically you have two and a half months ish. Yes. Yeah. All right. But then you mentioned age and staleness, which I think people often only think about like bread, but you know, yeah. in, in this case, financials. Right. So, so I, I just mentioned the timing of when you need to supply the financial statements, but I think it's important to talk about what are the financials or what are the what's the age of the financial statements that need to be provided. So the age of the financial statements that are going to be supplied in that 8K are, are based off of the the date that initial 8K was filed that announced the acquisition. And so I often refer to this as the reference date for determining the age of financial statements. And that's going to drive pretty much all the requirements because what needs to be supplied for that acquiree is financial statements as if it was, if, as if that entity was a registrant and the timing requirements for filing uh, financial statements that, that exist in existing SX 301. So it's as if they were their own registrant, but the question is always, well, is it the date that the acquisition occurred? Is it the date that I'm filing the AK? Like what's that reference mm-hmm. date for me to evaluate staleness and age? And in this case, um, as I mentioned, it's the initial, f- the, the initial filing of the form AK announcing the acquisition is the, is the date to apply, not the date that you actually file the financial statements later. So let me just make sure I understand. So let's say you close the deal on October 31st. So you would need to then file your 8K by November 4th. Yeah. I'm doing my math, right? Yeah. And then I can't do the math all the way. Until, but then that you would need to file the financial statements in like January timeframe in that example. That's right. Okay. That's right. And and for for you mentioned that November date. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, in all these dates I'm talking about, I'm ignoring weekends because business days comes into play and all that stuff. For yeah. The initial filing. But, um, but I, I'm ignoring that for purposes of this discussion. Okay. All right. So now in this case, so now we're using as though they were a registrant on November 4th in my example. So then how would you sort of be figuring out 
what was required. Or you can pick different dates because I yeah. picked some odd ones there. <laughs> yeah, sure. So the one that people most focus on is the annual audited financial yeah. statements. And are those going to be stale? So when you're when the acquisition occurs in the early part of the year, that's a question that often often comes up. So for example, let's take a situation where a, a public company is acquiring a private company, mm-hmm. um, both with calendar year end. So let's call it private co. And let's also assume that this was 45% significant. So that means two years of audited financials are going to be required as well as um, interim periods. So let's say this acquisition occurred on March 1st and the public co then filed its initial 8K announcing the acquisition, let's say on March 4th. So that means that March 4th is the reference date for purposes of the 8K. So even though public company plans to use the whole grace period, say, and file the file the 8K in May when, when, when it's due, when they supply those in May, it's going to be based off of the March 4th reference date. And in this case, because so the, the rules actually outline based on the filer status of the company, how you determine whether the, the annuals are, are stale. So the, the question that comes up most often is if a, if a company is acquiring a private company who doesn't have existing, you know, cadence of preparing quarterly and annual financial statements, when do those go stale? So in this case, the SEC rules would say the annual audited financial statements of the acquiree don't go stale until 90 days after. So let's just call that the end of March. So in this case, because they're a private company, if that reference date, as I stated before, was March 4th, then you won't need to provide, say, the most recent uh, audited financials. So if we were talking 2023, that would mean in this case, you would only need to apply, you would only need to provide 2020 and 21 financial statements and then interim financial statements for the, for the nine months ended in the most recent year. All right. So actually that's pretty helpful when you say that, because uh, if you, again, I, I think what you're saying is it's as though you have been able to file those financial statements on March 4th. And so on March 4th, those 2020 and 2021 financial statements would have been fine and and current. And so they would not have been stale. That's right. All right. But definitely sounds like, because I know we just went through a lot of dates. If you're dealing with this, you're going to want to kind of chart this all out to make sure because planning and making sure you, you have those right financial statements, obviously we've talked about is important. But then let me ask you another question because I know that already seems a little bit complicated enough. But are there cases then when these rules, the base rules kind of are changed or accelerated? Yeah. So th- this concept of the reference date that I outlined would change if a company's filing a, a new registration statement or, or a proxy statement. And that, that date of that filing would become the, the, new, the new reference date. So for example, using the example we just went through, the acquisition occurred in March and the reference date for the 8K was March, which yielded an answer that I didn't need the most recent, recently completed fiscal year financial, financial statements. However, if the company were to file a new registration statement in April with an effective date in April, April would become the reference date. So when what that means is even though the financial statements can still be supplied in May based on the, the grace period timing, when they are supplied, they are the, the year end financials are now stale. So you would need the year end, you know, 22 financials in, in, in my example. Now, if the acquisition is greater than 50% significant, 
so what I like to call super significant and a new registration statement is being filed, then those financial statements would need to be on file to be part of the registration statement. That is the timing of when to supply those financial statements is accelerated because it's greater than 50% and it's a new registration statement. So let me just make sure I understand. So when you say you've, you filed a registration statement, so either they updated their shelf or they issued debt or equity in that April timeframe, is that what you mean when you say filed a registration statement? Yeah, I wouldn't, that's, uh, it, it's filing a new registration statement. So for example, uh, take a company doing an initial public offering, filing an S1, take an existing public company, filing a shelf registration statement, for example, on form S3, that would that the, that would be the the reference date for that. If you're if you're doing an offering, so you already have a pre existing uh, oh, effective S three shelf, and you're doing an offering, then then it is different. All right. So, but so you're saying you really need to watch this because maybe you'd be able to plan around this for the registration statement, but you also mentioned proxy statements. Yeah. So it would apply to registration or what I like to call transactional proxy statements, say for another M&A deal or something like that. I, I think it's important to, to point out too, that um, th this concept of reference date, it's, it's really evergreen, right? So you had the initial 8K that needs to be filed with the financials I, I mentioned, but every time a new registration statement is filed, a company is supposed to look at that and say, do I need to update those financial statements that were previously supplied on the 8K, for example, to add a later audited period or the last quarter before the acquisition occurred? So that that can continue and it will continue in, a, in later registration statements until those financial statements have been, the, the acquiree has been included in the registrant's financial statements for a sufficient period of time. And how long is a sufficient period of time? So um, it's going to be either included in the registrant's audited results for nine months or a full year, depending on the significance. And I want to I want to emphasize audited results. And the theory there is that once the once the registrant has consolidated the acquired business for a sufficient period of time, the continuing impact of that demonstrated through the separate financial statements may no may no longer be needed for for that um, decision useful information. So if we go back to our March 4th announcement, you're saying for all now of 2023, if I have new registration statements or um, you said trans transactional proxy yeah. statements. Yeah, so, I just so wanted not, to make not sure. Not necessarily like just the annual proxy yeah. For, yeah. You know, right. for, for electing board members, but when you're trying to do a new transactional deal, an M&A deal. All right. So all through 2023, then, if you do one of those, then you would, in this case, have to update those financial statements that you had filed, the separate company financial statements to 2022, likely because you're going to be past that March 31 date. That's right. The example I gave, though, was a, an acquisition that occurred in March. So you would never have to supply ultimately a partial quarter. So it always, go, it always goes to the last quarter. So if, it, if the acquisition happened in March then the latest quarter end or year end would be the year ended 22 for the acquiree. So you're right. Every time there's a new registration statement, you'd have to update that reference date and think through whether or not additional periods need to be added mm -hmm. on to what was in that form 8K. And then by the time then when you uh, file your 2023 audited financial statements, it would have been in for nine months. And so now I would be past this and I'm, 
done having to update those financial statements. Yeah. So when, when you file your 2023 10K, you're right. It would have been consolidated for over nine months. And as long as the acquisition did not exceed 40% significant, then you would no longer need to uh, supply those financial statements, say, in a, in a new registration statement that might be filed in, in 2024. Um, again, if it, if it exceeded um, 40%, then, then it would need to be uh, need to be supplied until a full year of the of the acquired acquired company has been consolidated in the registrant's audited results. So basically, then not until you file your twenty twenty four financial statements. Yep. Wow. So definitely, I think goes back to maybe we should have started with this because Jay's <laughs> point about making sure you consider this in your deal uh, really, really comes home when you run through all these examples and numbers. So that, that's right. When I'm talking to companies or uh, t- talking to others about this, I'm I'm also making sure that when they file that 8K and they have those financials that they're also thinking like, well, what's the worst answer? What are the potential updates that I may, may need to make to it? Because I think it's important to be prepared for that. Yeah. And now that you're mentioning this, I do actually remember much of this. I think I blocked it out just because of the difficulty of, of dealing with some of this stuff in practice. So um, definitely something to think about. Then let me ask you another follow-up question because I know there's also this idea if you're doing multiple acquisitions, you can't look at them all separately in a vacuum. So how does that come into play? Yeah, so there there is a rule around the concept of aggregate significance, which which kicks in for for registration statements and 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 proxy statements. So in this case, if if the all of the acquisitions exceeded all of them together exceeded fifty percent, then there's two implications to that. Okay, the first is that you may need to file for that registration statement. You may need to accelerate the filing of those financial statements. So you may need to include. You normally have the grace period. You may need to include the financials for any of those individual acquisitions that were that were um, greater than twenty percent significant. You'd have to include those financials for the registration statement because, in the aggregate, you were over fifty percent. And additionally, you would be required to include pro forma financial statements as well, giving effect to the impact of all of the acquisitions that have occurred. All right. So definitely something else to keep an eye on. Then let me ask you one more question. Well, I have more than one more question, but one more for now. So one of the things that I talked to Jay about earlier in the month was reverse mergers. And so Ryan, is there anything from a SEC perspective we should be thinking about when we're dealing with a reverse merger? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts here. Remember a reverse merger is one where in summary, the accounting for the acquisition is different than the the legal form. I think I said it's backwards. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That that is that the entity legally surviving the merger may actually not be the accounting acquirer for accounting purposes, but in this case, the accounting acquiree. So the legal acquiree is actually the accounting acquirer and is going to apply the business combination. So in this case though, the SEC rules, and the filing requirements are driven off the legal form of the transaction. So in this case, you could actually have the um, legal, the legal acquiree, uh, the legal acquiree, who's the accounting acquirer. It would be the accounting acquirer financial statements that are, that are furnished for, for 305 purposes. Unless the legal acquirer is a shell company that I think Jay has mentioned in an earlier podcast. In that case, the rules there are different. It's important to make sure you've got all of that 
uh, lined up so you know what what you need for the the filing uh, filing requirements. All right. So then let's shift gears. Definitely a lot to think about with these separate financial statements and even more complicated, obviously, in this reverse merger case, at least to know which entities are are involved in what's required. But actually, one of the other things I know we spend a lot of time talking about in these cases are pro formas, because there's a lot of requirements around those as well. And so why don't can we give some highlights of what's required and then we can dig in a little yeah, so Article 11 is the SX rule that outlines the requirements for for pro forma financial statements, and we we talked about how they would be supplied for for significant acquisitions, um, if if it met those those 305 thresholds, and they those pro forma financials should be prepared and filed at the same time the audited financials the audited financials or the 305 financials are, are filed that 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 I talked about previously. Um, the general requirements for the pro forma financial statements are you know, introductory paragraph outlining what what's going to be supplied and the basis for the presentation, um, a pro forma condensed balance sheet giving effect to the acquisition as if it, it closed on that balance sheet date, and a pro forma condensed income statement as well. So these, um, for for the income statement, they're going to need to be provided for the most recently completed fiscal year of the registrant and subsequent interim period. So, so only one year in the case of an acquisition. And you would also include supplementary, supplementary notes explaining the adjustments that are, are being made. And then Ryan, I should have asked this for the separate financials, but because I think it applies to both, where do you file these? They're an exhibit to your uh, annual filing? Typically, we were talking earlier about a situation where they're filed on a form AK. So yeah. the AK oh, yeah. would des- describe the acquisition that occurred and then supply the financials. And you're right, typically in an exhibit, the financial statements and the pro formas in an exhibit, usually side by side. All right. So then that's where these pro formas would go. So then the timing for the pro formas, and sorry if you already hit this, what is the timing for filing these pro formas? It's going to be the the pro formas accompany the the significant uh, the financial statements of the acquiry. So the, it, oh, it's it would, all together. It's all together. All together. All right. Generally. So definitely a lot to get done. So, <laughs> with that said, that there's a lot to get done. What are some of the adjustments that you typically make in creating these pro formas? Yeah. So there's there's three types of adjustments. I'd say one of them is the the one that's most uh, most significant and relevant here for acquisitions, and that's transaction accounting adjustments and. What what those adjustments are are intended to to do is to uh, make make adjustments to give effect to the gap accounting for the acquisition um, as if it occurred at the beginning of of the earliest year for for purposes of the income statement. Um, so uh, in this case, it would be, for example, giving effect to the depreciation and amortization that comes up from the the purchase price allocation and the step up of the value of assets. Uh, it, there could be step ups, say, of inventory values. So it's going to there'll be a transaction accounting adjustment for mm-hmm. cost of goods sold for the inventory um, s- selling through in the pro forma financials. And then you also see adjustments, say, for the transaction costs associated with the acquisition and getting those in the right period. Um, and even even making an accrual for those where where necessary if they aren't in the historical financial statements of the acquirer. There are other adjustments that are outlined in Article 11. So there's a to- what's called autonomous entity adjustments, and these are for situations where maybe the entity wasn't really being operated kind of on a standalone basis. You typically only see those say 
in pro formas for say a spinoff transaction. So they're not common in a, uh, a typical acquisition set of pro formas. And the third set of adjustments are what's called management's adjustments. This is an optional set of adjustments that a company can prepare to show the synergies. And if you're going to show the synergies, you're required to show what the, the rule refers to as the dis-synergies of the acquisition. And those are prepared separately in the footnotes as, as separate adjustments. And, and they are optional. We don't, we don't see them all the time, I would say for acquisitions, but you know, so there's mixed practice on whether those are included or not, but they are optional. All right. So transaction accounting and autonomous entity accounting or adjustments, both required. And then these management ones are optional. That's right. You know, maybe I chime in here on something that, that might've alluded to Ryan, or maybe you were, you talked about pro formas for acquisitions and obviously this whole month, we're largely talking about acquisitions, but maybe something just to pause on here because it's uh, you've talked a lot about timing mm-hmm. and what happens if you uh, lose sight of the timing. And one that actually really sneaks up on people is if you're selling a business, or if you're disposing of a business and it's significant, there's also, we haven't really talked about all the rules around that, but there are some similar significance tests there. And if, if you're selling something that's significant at the, the 20% level, you, you similarly have to do an 8K and you have to file, maybe not audited financials of what you're selling, unless you're doing a spinoff or something mm-hmm. like that, but you have to include pro forma financials information about what you're selling. And unlike the acquisition where you get that 75-day total period or the 71-day grace period, with the disposition, you only get four days. You, get, you have to file it within the four days for the AK, and you do not get that extra 71-day period to, to gather the information for it. The thought being, you already own the company. You should have all the information. Mm-hmm. So you, you really have to be kind of ahead of the game and basically have it done before the deal happens because you have a very short period of time to, to get it out afterwards. Um, so that's one that we, we run into a lot and it surprises a lot of people that they don't have that extra 71-day grace period. Yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. And again, I just go back to your beginning comment, Jay, on timing. And there's a lot here. I guess one of the other questions I have Ryan is we've focused here on this, you know, it's the post deal, but do we see situations where there's information required prior to this deal close plus 75 day period? Yeah. yeah, There's a, there's a few situations where you, you would need to supply, uh, potentially supply acquiry financial statements uh, ahead of time before close. So the first is, for example, if a company is, is actually going to say, use its shares as currency for the acquisition and they're going to be registered shares. They're going to be required to, f- to file usually a form S4 to register those shares. In that case, it's not necessarily 305 that applies for what financials would be included, but you would follow form S4 and there are requirements in there to supply information about the business to be acquired in a, in, in, in an S4 for, for an M and a deal like this. And in that situation, it's going to depend on whether that target company is like an existing reporting company. Um, are they solely a private company? Uh, who's who's voting in, in the deal? What's the nature of the consideration? There's a number of factors that need to go through to figure out precisely what financials need to be supplied for the acquiry. But the important point is there you're going to be following the form. So form S4 requirements versus just defaulting to what 305 tells you to do. Now, you may need to file 305 oh. financials later. <laughs> you anticipated but, my question but, there. But the contents of that S4 are going to follow the form. 
All right. That's helpful. And then any other circumstances? Yeah, sure. So um, there, there are situations, say, where, um, in, especially in a deal where there's a proxy statement, sometimes it's a it's filed jointly with the S4 if it's the registration statement is going to serve also as the, the proxy um, statement. But a, comp- a company doing an acquisition may need to solicit the votes of its shareholders. Sometimes the acquired company will need to solicit the votes of its shareholders. And so there's a proxy statement, sometimes a joint proxy statement that's prepared. And in those circumstances, there are also rules for the forms and the requirements that you would apply to determine what financials of the acquiree may need to be included in that proxy statement. The other, the other thing where this comes up is, I, I'll just say general registration statement. So if I'm thinking about an IPO or again, back to our S3 shelf registration statement, a company may need to include financial statements of a to-be-acquired business if it's above 50% significant. So when it's of super significance there, there are there are requirements to include those financials of probably specifically in the rules, it says probable acquisitions and that, that would need to be included. If greater than 50%, the financial statements of that probable acquiree would need to be included in, uh, in those registration statements as well. So that again, is a situation where you may be required to include those before the deal has been completed. All right. And not to get too sidetracked with this, but probable when it comes to a deal. I mean, there's a lot of things in a deal that can go wrong, but do you see that this requirement that companies do, that you do find deals that are probable and that where they are required to make these filings? Yeah, it doesn't have, it, it, we don't, we don't see it. We don't see it a lot, but there are definitely situations where the two parties have entered into a definitive agreement. It hasn't closed yet. In fact, sometimes the close period may be long because of, regulatory review, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, And so the company and their legal counsel will evaluate. There's not a lot of guidance around probable here, but I think typically what we see in practice is companies conclude it's probable if there's a definitive agreement that's, that's been signed and executed. Um, They'll, they'll, they'll consider that probable. All right. So definitely lots to think about there. So And it's interesting when I was listening to you, I I think I almost anticipated this when I asked you the question earlier about cash for shares, because it does sound like just whether you're doing a share deal, a cash deal, whether or not you need proxies, all of these different requirements are important. And, um, you know, I I don't often say (laughs) it sounds like companies should be getting help, but definitely sounds like companies should be getting help in this cases. But what else do you recommend in terms of how to navigate through all these cases? Yeah. So when we're talking about these, the, the rules I just described, like the, the, the SEC's division of corporation finances issued, they, ha- they have a financial reporting manual out there. It's got a number of examples there. It gives dates, it gives specifics. It's got grids that outline what might be needed in a proxy statement, depending on the facts, what might be needed in an S4, depending on the facts. Um, so I, I, I'd recommend that that's the tool that I use often when, when navigating this. All right. And then Jay, uh, we'd be very remiss if we didn't talk about, we've been focused on these SEC requirements, but there's obviously a lot of gap, um, disclosure requirements Mm -hmm. as well here. So anything in particular that you would highlight or any differences in like in particular that you would highlight? One, one big thing is that on the gap side, we don't really have the notion of the significance tests that Ryan's talked a lot about during the podcast. And so everything just kind of falls into the general notion of what's material. 
to the financial statements taken as a whole. So that usually means we end up disclosing more stuff in the footnotes under GAAP than maybe Ryan's talked about in terms of the separate financial statements uh, that you might need to file. We've talked a lot about it in some past podcasts, including I think a full disclosure series podcast that we did uh, probably about a year, year and a half ago, where there's a lot of required disclosures under GAAP about the general nature of the business that you've acquired, like the name of it, the type of business it's in, how much was acquired, when it was acquired, why it was acquired, and (laughs) sort of what the key terms of the deal was. And then also a bunch of numerical disclosures uh, about things like the total purchase price, any contingent consideration, like we talked about in a past podcast here in the series, you know, the fair value of all the assets acquired and liabilities assumed, and then the goodwill that you recorded and what segment it's part of. So there's a fair amount to disclose about the acquisitions you do. Uh, one thing you have to do for Gap that if you're a public company, you also have to disclose how much revenue and earnings and that income the company that you've acquired has has generated subsequent to the acquisition date so you know ryan was talking about like what you've mm. once it's been included in the financial statements for a period that this one isn't about the nine months or a year it's yeah. just whatever year you do the acquisition you have to talk about for the rest of that year how much did the acquired company contribute to the consolidated results so you, if you're a public company you have to kind of keep track of that for a period of time, at least through the end of that first fiscal year. And then not to be uh, you know, outdone by the SEC's pro forma rules, GAP also has some pro forma rules, uh, pro forma disclosures as well. And while they're certainly similar in, in many ways, unfortunately, there are some differences in the rules, both about what's required and the calculations and presentation, things like that. Some of the um, the periods that are presented are different. Usually do end up doing pro formas for the, the year of acquisition, kind of going back to the beginning of that year and the previous year and sort of w- when you uh, measure the amount of some of those adjustments, those fair value adjustments and purchase accounting, you kind of uh, push back to the, the earliest year. You don't have to do a full income statement or income statement down to income from continuing ops. You, you only have to show revenue and income. So that's helpful. That's a little bit less information. But under the GAP side, we don't really have the, the concepts of those transaction or autonomous entity and management adjustments that Ryan mm-hmm. uh, had mentioned. Uh, you only do things like the, the baseline stuff or that are kind of uh, factually supportable, things like aligning accounting policies to the extent they were different, pushing the acquisition date fair value back to the beginning, like depreciation or intangibles mm-hmm. or inventory things like that. And maybe if you've, there's been a change in the capital structure of the target, like debt got paid off, you would, you would adjust for the interest as well there. So basically you could wind up with different pro formas between your SEC filing and your gap footnote. Yes. All right. That's a lot for companies to think about. Anything else you'd highlight in the footnotes, Jay? Well, maybe one other thing, just listening to Ryan talk about all of these sort of, you know, probable future acquisitions and things that have happened at various dates is that Gap, again, does talk about what to do with subsequent events acquisitions. So if you bought a company after the financial statements date, the balance sheet date, but before the financial statements go out, here the guidance just says you are supposed to make all the same disclosures about those acquisitions as well as the ones that happened before the balance sheet date. But if your purchase accounting isn't complete yet, because it can take a while to do, you can 
uh, not include the in- certain information that you don't have available, and you just have to explain what is preliminary and what, what you haven't disclosed so that readers can understand all that. All right. Well, definitely a lot to think about. And I, I said this before about getting help, but it sounds like to me, Ryan, is that they need someone like you on speed dial <laughs> if you're dealing with this. But what advice do you have for companies as, you know, from all your experience working through these types of situations? Yeah, I I, I think that it's important, Heather, to just I think I mentioned this before, like just being grounded in the the rules and the forms when going through it, because it can be a little complex. I gave some of the caveats earlier of, of some of the nuances, but I would also just say in general, when companies are thinking about this too, they, they want to make sure they're thinking about it in terms of the filing as a whole. So if there's an acquisition that's pending or an acquisition that's completed, I think it's important to think about the effects that that might have on other areas of the filing filing. So for example, liquidity disclosures and MDNA. Um, there may be updates to the risk factors, the business section, et cetera. So it just, you know, we talked about a very narrow part of it, but I think it, it's important to look at it holistically. Yeah, definitely a good reminder. And we've talked about this before. You don't want to just be rolling things forward. And it sounds like particularly in this case, how about Jay, from your perspective? Well, maybe I'll, I'll end where I began the podcast, uh, which is to say, don't overlook the importance of mapping all this stuff out and planning for all the filings that you're going to have to do when you do a deal. I think it's, we find it's pretty easy to get lost in the excitement uh, and the challenges of closing a deal and then working on the integration and then from the financial reporting perspective, doing all the purchase accounting work. Uh, But it takes a lot to make sure all the filings get done as well. And while we've talked a lot about public companies, existing public companies here, Ryan's alluded to that that if you're a private company, you're not off the hook because if you want to go public, and of course many private companies do want to go public, but if, if you've done an acquisition recently in the period leading up to the time you're going public, you may very well have to include all of these financial statements and pro formas that Ryan's been talking about in your IPO filing as well. So make sure you build that into your timetable. All right. And then if people want to read more about this, where would you send them, Ryan? Yeah. So I, again, not to not to sound like a broken record, but in this case, I think that the rules are important. So I think starting with there, but then it, I, I think after reading those, people are always thirsting for examples. So thinking back to the reference date discussion we had earlier, the SEC's financial reporting manual in it does have some good examples and discussion of the reference date concepts uh, around that initial AK, subsequent registration statements. So I would definitely point the audience there. I will caveat that a little bit by saying the rules around 305 and significance tests changed a few years Mm. back. And so I think um, listeners should use caution when looking at that financial reporting manual, because not all of it may have been may have been updated to address the the current rules. But I think things like the reference data are are a good example. So I would use those as resources. And and on the financials, um, statement disclosures from the accounting side of it. Uh, that's all covered in Chapter 17 of our Financial Statement Presentation Guide. And we mentioned that we did a podcast yes. together uh, probably about a year, year and a half ago about the disclosures for business accommodations as well. All right. Well, definitely a lot to think about. And we can include links to those in the show notes. But uh, both really appreciate all the insight. And thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. You're welcome. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. 
so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.